Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and the Monica Crowley podcast. How's that going, Monica, that podcast? Hey, Larry, thank you for having me. It is going gangbusters, and I cannot wait to have you and Steve Moore on my podcast. (laughs) We accept. And Steve Moore, you see Steve Moore, who's the Vice President of FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, the author of Gobzilla. Uh, Welcome back, kids. So, Disinformation Governance Board, (laughs) Disinformation Governance Board, the Ministry of Truth, George George Orwell wrote about this in the mid-1940s with his books Animal Farm and um, 1984, I guess that was the other one. Anyway, Monica, in brief, (laughs) what do you make of the Disinformation Governance Board? Well, you know, I mentioned this on my podcast the other day, Larry. A couple of years ago, I went back and I reread Animal Farm 1984 (laughs) and Brave New World uh, because I thought that was an important one to read, too. And I thought, well, we better be prepared because it sounds like this stuff might be coming down the pike. And here we are. It's terrifying. I encourage everybody to go back and read those three novels because it's now become real life. Um, Look, it's sort of easy to poke fun at this new minister of truth because apparently she is a frustrated American Idol contestant. (laughs) Filthing out so soon. Oh, we are. (laughs) I know we all are. Uh, but now this, this woman was clearly a lunatic uh, and clearly on the radical left and clearly a communist is now sitting atop this this new governance board that's going to determine what can be said, can determine what the flow of information is going to be to the rest of us. And she is housed in the Department of Homeland Security, which make the, makes this exceedingly dangerous because that is one of very few government agencies that actually possesses and controls weapons and ammunition. So when you combine this kind of government censorship with the Department of Homeland Security, whose task it is to make sure that the homeland is safe from from enemies, foreign and domestic, and has the weapons to do that, that takes us to a whole other level, Larry. But by the way, it's an interesting point. Um, I was having dinner. This is several years ago with um, with General John Kelly, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, who was a great friend. Uh, I didn't know this, but the Department of Homeland Security has the largest police force in America, roughly 65,000 law enforcement officers. He asked me which is the largest one, and I said the New York Police Department, which has at the time about 40,000, but no, Homeland Security. Um, Steve Moore, one of the things, look, at I had Chad Wolf on earlier in the show. He was former secretary of DHS in the Trump years. And Chad made this important distinction. The Department of Homeland Security, it's okay to monitor foreign misinformation, particularly when it comes to cyber cyber hacking. But it's not okay, not okay and unconstitutional to monitor domestic uh, so-called misinformation. And this guy, Mayorka, Steve, talked about elections and education, which I thought were real tip-offs that this was going to suppress conservative speech. 
Yeah, well, by the way, I think I can outdo Monica because I actually went back and read the 1,200-page Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> so, <and that laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm actually, I did not actually go back and read it, but I did go read back some passages, and it really is amazing because, of course, that was a satire of what would happen, you know, when the economy collapsed and uh, everything became mayhem. And that's kind of what we have right now. By the way, I think this might have been uh, – uh, Joe Biden's worst week in office. Um, mm-hmm. Although, you know, I, I, but in any case, um, you make a really important distinction there, uh, and Chad does too, about um, if this is about the government spying on us, right? right. Not on right. not on foreign agents, on us, on what we do. And by the way, what is misinformation? Was was the uh, Russian hoax? Was that misinformation? Was Hunter were Biden, Hunter Biden's emails misinformation? I mean, what? What one day is is uh, is um, labeled misinformation, uh, another day turns out to be the truth. So this is this is a very worrisome thing. And look, I'm a libertarian. I don't want the government spying on me. But Steve, to your point, this is uh, Biden's worst week or one of his worst weeks. Step back for a minute from the various free speech, First Amendment, constitutional issues. Step back from that. It just seems to me, Steve. This is another major political blunder by Biden, okay? Because everyone is beating up on this or making fun of it, uh, and this woman is a nut job and so forth. But really, this just is another major political blunder that's burying his administration. Yeah, you know, uh, remember the, on Saturday Night Live, they had the not ready for time, prime time players. <laughs> That's what we yes. have in the White House yes. right now, the, the not ready for prime time players. And obviously all of this is, is uh, I don't think this is coming from Biden. I think it's coming from his a genius staff. And, and by the way, when you say this was one of his blunders, I think the biggest blunder of all, maybe even bigger than this, was this crazy lunatic idea of spending $1.5 trillion to bail out student loans. I can't, yes. I said this on your show, you know, you know my wife, Anne, and, and you know, she's a very nice person, but she does have a temper. And when she heard about this <laughs> idea, she paid, look, she paid back her student loans. She went to UCLA when she graduated, you know, she diligently, like a stand-up person does, she, she took money out of her pay, meager paycheck and she paid back that loan. And she's screaming at me. She's like, now Joe Biden wants to tax me so I can pay for other people's student loans who didn't pay it back? What is the number 60% of the delinquent loans are people with uh, with graduate degrees? Come on. Mm -hmm. Well, the headline uh, opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, their top editorial today, is called The Uh Taxpayer Con of the Century, Monica. The Taxpayer Con of the Century. And the subheader is writing off student loan debt is a wealth transfer to the affluent and academia. And I would add, Monica, this is a cheap attempt to buy votes among young people because Biden is losing support among young people. Yes, of course, this will be economically catastrophic, as Stephen, you have pointed out on this. This is something that we cannot afford to do economically. But then there is the moral issue of this. This is a giant, you know, screw you to the over 50 percent. Actually, I think it's over 60 percent of the American people who do not hold college degrees. So the government is giving a giant handout to the affluent and those who are college educated um, to wiping out their debt 
while the rest of, of the folks are sitting there saying, well, uh, what about me? What, how is yeah. this fair to me? So this is a giant economic hazard. It's a giant moral hazard. But to your point, Larry, I think that this is one of the most underreported stories uh, in America. The hemorrhaging away from the Democratic Party of all of their core constituencies, African-Americans, Latinos, women, and younger voters, they are moving away from the Democratic Party in droves. And, of course, the press doesn't want to report this because it makes the Democrats look bad. And it's a giant signal of the kind of uh, political devastation they're going to sustain in November. And then in 24 and beyond, because this is such a sea change. But they are trying to try to get those young people back and motivated in an off-year election this year with this huge kind of giveaway. The progressives like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they have been pressing this for a long time. So this is another thing that Biden feels like, okay, I can keep the, the far left off my back if I go ahead and do this. Plus, we might get some younger voters to come back into the fold. I don't think it's going to work. Um, and I, you know, there's only so much he can do via um, executive order on this. But I think he's going to move ahead and it's going to make what the current inflationary environment is. It's going to make it so much worse if the government then pumps in another one, one point five trillion dollars to wipe away this debt. By the way, uh, before we take a break, I don't know if either of you saw the Elon Musk uh, tweet of his political (laughs) movement where he starts out in 2008, (laughs) where he's left of center and then by yep. 2012, he's center. And then by today, okay. he's well right of center, which sort right. of encapsulates what Monica's saying. I mean, Biden's losing every constituency. That's what's happening yeah. here. There's almost yeah. going to be way, nobody... Larry, do, you, do you remember what Ronald Reagan used to say? I didn't leave my party. My party left me. Because right. he was a Democrat, remember? Yes. And he said, oh, the Democratic Party left me. I think that those are the people Monica is talking about, the millions of people, Hispanics, black Americans, young people who said, hey, the, the, the party's leaving me. Listen, I worked for Ronald Reagan, a Democrat turned Republican, Donald yeah. Trump, Democrat turned Republican. Democrat turned Republican. <laughs> I, I am a Democrat turned Republican. All right. the best Republicans are former Democrats. I said that on the. I, are you talking about Sal that, Miller? Uh, uh, that's right, Sal Miller. I forgot about the late Senator Sal Miller from Georgia. I said that on the air one night, and, and Pat Toomey said, "No, no." He, he he took great objection to it. He said there were some legitimate Republicans. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We are here, Monica Crowley and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and the Monica Crowley Podcast, and Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and the author of GovZilla. So, kids, let me go to another one. Steve, go to you first. The China Compete Bill, which does no such thing, as much as $350 billion. You know, I had Senator uh, Roger Marshall on from Kansas earlier in the show. Guy's, a, by the way, a rising conservative in the Senate. He's a very strong guy. I mean, this is a travesty 
This is corporate welfare, industrial policy. A lot of it is the Green New Deal. It will do nothing to compete. It bails out Intel. They don't need the money. There's $200 million of private investment already in play and invested into the American chip industry. But, Steve, the sheer lunacy of more federal spending with an 8% inflation rate is beyond me. And I want to add one thing, get you both in on this. There were, I don't know, 12 or 15 Republicans who voted for this in the Senate, which is just terrible. You're exactly right. When I first came to Washington in 1980, around 83, 84, you may may remember back then, Larry, I think you were working at the White House. The whole rage was this idea of Japanese national industrial policy. Remember that? You know, where right. you, we'd have the right. government subsidize all the industries. And everybody's, oh, this is, this is the only way we can compete with the Japanese. Of course, after a few years later, Japan went into about a 15-year recession. And the United States, with tax cuts under Reagan and deregulation, had the biggest boom in history. And it's just it's amazing these bad ideas keep coming back. Uh, China's industrial policy model is going to, in my opinion, is going to collapse. It's not going to work. You know, you, you you have the government making the investment decisions and you make a lot of bad investment decisions. Just politicians aren't very good at that. Um, I'm going to make one other quick point. You know, the worst thing you can do in, to an industry is subsidize it. I mean, look at the wind and solar industry, Larry. We've spent one hundred and eighty billion dollars subsidizing wind and solar and it's nowhere I mean, it's six percent of our energy i actually think if 30 years ago we just said you know compete compete in a free market we'd have a more vibrant wind and solar industry than when they they chase these tax dollars and i don't want that to happen to the semiconductor industry you know that's a, a really good point you, you subsidize and protect you're going to weaken yep. the industry that's a very good point by the way our chip industry has lost a lot of luster and a lot of ground. Nowhere is that better illustrated by Intel, which is lobbying heavily for this bill, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, will take is already uh, putting an investment into Germany, a big investment, and will take more tax dollars to uh, bolster that investment. Monica Crowley, I want to get your take on the China Compete Bill and the big spending part of it. But also, Monica, instead of a broader question, do you think that the China Phase One deal that was negotiated, uh, I was on the, I was on that team, but during the Trump years, did that deal work, not work, someplace in between? What do you think? Well, you know, it was such a historic achievement on the part of President Trump and you and my boss, Secretary Mnuchin, and Ambassador Lighthizer, who went in and and in a very hard-nosed way, negotiated a new trade deal with China. Nobody thought that that was possible. With globalism and Chinese dominance uh, and China taking full advantage of the United States and the West and the fact that we have allowed ourselves to become so dependent, economically dependent on Chinese goods, that nobody thought it was possible. And Trump comes in and he says, yes, it is, and I'm going to force their hand. And he did it via tariffs. And I know that you've come around on tariffs. I think Steve has come around on tariffs. You have to do something to get Just for China. Just for China. China. Just Just for China. (laughs) I understand. Just for China. When you're dealing with the CCP, you have to do something extreme to get their attention and drive them to the table. And that's what Trump understood. 
Look, I was with Secretary Mnuchin and Ambassador Lighthizer on their last trip to China uh, before we struck the deal. It was the last round of, nego- of negotiations. It was August of 2019, just a couple of weeks before the Wuhan virus alighted on the scene a couple of hundred miles away from where we were in Shanghai. Um, it, it was a fascinating process to watch. And when you ask whether or not it worked, it did work in terms of a couple of things, Larry. Number one, getting the Chinese Chinese to the table to getting the Chinese to understand that the Americans were serious about the trade imbalance and rectifying it. And we were done being taken advantage of. Three, it set the table for other trade deals like a reworking of NAFTA with our Mexican and Canadian uh, counterparts and also with the U.K. and Japan and South Korea. We got all new trade deals with those trading partners because they knew we were serious when we were talking to the Chinese. Fourth, I think, though, it it essentially kind of, I don't want to say fell apart, but it lost its momentum when the pandemic hit. And that then changed everything. The global economy shut down and it changed the whole dynamic. And certainly the way President Trump then looked at the Chinese, it, it became less a collaboration on fixing the trade imbalance and more of an but, adversarial uh, position. But I think, you know, Steve, um, when we were in Atlanta last week uh, for the America First uh, mm-hmm. Policy uh, Conference, we did the show from yeah. down there. And I had Bob Lighthizer on the show. He's a very dear friend of mine. Of mine. Um, he made a very good, good point that he stepped back from the trade details and so forth. The singular achievement of President Trump was to ring the bell and alert right. America and the rest of the world about China and their yeah. unfair trading practices and their dictatorships and their centrally controlled economy. In other words, there are adversaries, yeah. not our pals, that really Trump rang that bell and that that was a huge accomplishment. It sure was. And I said before the election in 2020, I, I said, I predicted, I said, if, if Trump loses and Joe Biden wins, the two biggest winners on the planet will be Vladimir Putin and President Xi. Uh, and unfortunately, right. I was right. right. That's exactly what's happened. Uh, they, they see the weakness, um, both, you know, you say it all the time, Larry, weak at home, weak abroad. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a precarious situation. We need, to get, we need to get Trump back or somebody who knows something about the economy back in the White House and, and, it's, and puts America first. And that's not jingoistic. It's just the way it should be, Monica. A president should put America first. Amen. <laughs> and, Mon- and Monica, that, you know, comes full circle around to Ukraine because, and it was Gary Kasparov, the chess master and human rights advocate who said this on my show and, and probably six weeks ago, you want to go after she, all right? The best way to go after she is to win the war in Ukraine, which in turn will knock Putin out in Moscow and send the message to Xi. That was Gary Kasparov's strategy. And since then, I've asked a bunch of people like Robert O'Brien and others, uh, and they totally agreed. So, you know, that makes this Ukrainian war, it's so important in terms of sovereignty and international law uh, and getting rid of Putin, but it really is a message to Xi that could be in the long run the most important aspect. 
Yeah, you know, I do believe that the United States, as the world's leader for freedom in the world, um, needs to stand up to the world's worst bad guys like Putin. So I do understand that, and I, I do support that. I do think, however, that the loose talk about regime change in Russia, and this is not a statement of apology for Vladimir Putin by any stretch, but I think when people... Uh, in the West talk loosely about regime change in Russia and getting rid of Putin, there's the assumption that what replaces Putin will be better. And in fact, what could replace Putin could be worse. And so we've got to be very, very careful as we trade carefully. Good point. Good perspective. Monica Crowley, Steve Moore. Thank you, kids. Terrific stuff. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.